0: Abu Thayer, Engineer During the first few days of the revolution, we weren't careful, and we brought the wounded to the government-run hospitals. In the morning, we'd take an injured person to the hospital with a gunshot wound in his leg. That night, we'd return to find him dead with a gunshot to the head. Guys would die, and they'd force their families to say that their sons had been killed by terrorist gangs. So we created field hospitals. A friend of mine donated his house and transformed it into a place to help the wounded. There were doctors and nurses, and young women and men volunteered to help. If the regime caught them, it would kill them. Sometimes when people arrived, they were already dead. Sometimes people would die in front of us, and we couldn't do anything because we didn't have bandages to stop the bleeding. Sometimes someone died at night, and we couldn't bury him until the morning. Because of the electricity cuts, we might not have ice to put on his body. The smell would be terrible. There was a man called Jobber, and his mission was to go around and find ice from other people in the city. He had a motorcycle, and sometimes he would travel long distances searching for ice. And then Jobber was killed, and we couldn't find any ice for him.
1: Of Tim Vetter podcast.
0: Greetings, voyagers! Welcome to the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. This is episode number one hundred and thirty-two. That opening reading that you heard was an interview, and that interview appears in the book "We Crossed a Bridge and It Trembled: Voices from Syria." The author of that book is Wendy Proman. Wendy also happens to be the guest on this episode today. So the book which I had just read is it's really incredible and it's hundreds of interviews with Syrians. Now these are voices from the opposition and the resistance to the Assad regime. And Wendy made it clear to me that she created this book as a platform to amplify the voices of Syrians. It's really incredible, it's heartbreaking it's informative, uh, it allows for those voices to be heard when so many voices that you hear are coming from media and it's hard to, it's hard to know what the truth is, it's hard to know what's going on, it's hard to know who to believe. Um, so I'm really, really grateful for this book and I'm grateful for Wendy for coming on the podcast today. She is a wealth of knowledge, incredibly knowledgeable. Please check out her Twitter, go to the show notes for this. Even if you don't have a Twitter, you can follow it and uh, I ask you to do that because she also curates a lot of information and she retweets articles uh, and uh, a lot of things from, from, from Syria to Lebanon and Iraq, um, a lot of, of really useful and valuable information. Um, she also talked about a couple of websites that I'll have in the show notes for this episode. Really, really grateful to have her on today. She called in from Chicago and I had her on uh, over the phone in my apartment here in Brooklyn. I would implore you to go get this book. Uh, I think you can get it relatively cheaply on Amazon or, hey, use your library, folks. Your library is an amazing resource. Uh, You know, a lot of libraries, like here in New York, if they don't have it at your local one, it can get sent to. Uh, your local neighborhood library from a surrounding area library. So, uh, even if you if you can't purchase it, I would recommend that you go get it at the library. Folks, you can support the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast on Patreon. Go to patreon.com/slash/thevoyagesoftimvetter, and you can give uh, monthly. It's a subscription-based service where you can give one dollar, five dollars, ten dollars, and that goes to keeping these conversations coming. If not, and you can't support monetarily, I get it, folks, but if you could spread the word, uh, share on social media, just tell a friend, go to iTunes, leave a five-star rating and review, all those things are really terrific, and it would really help me out and help out the Voyager community. All right, folks, uh, please enjoy this conversation with Wendy. Well, first of all, Wendy, thank you. I know you are incredibly busy, and I'm really, really grateful that you're giving me some time today. Well, thank you. It's my pleasure. Yeah, so I uh, I read We Crossed a Bridge and It Trembled, and I thought it was incredible. I thought some of the interviews were honestly heartbreaking, and mm-hmm. it helped me to get a bit of a better understanding and some context into what's happening in Syria. Uh but I'm, I'm also really happy to have you here to help maybe clear up some misconceptions and provide some more context. Because Great. obviously a lot of what we get here through our media, our mainstream media, is what Fox News, CNN, MSNBC. Um, and I believe the point of your book was to give voice to the people who are from Syria. Is that a fair, uh, a fair estimation of what the purpose of the book was? I mean, yeah, I um,
1: I actually don't love the expression give voice myself because these folks are not at all voiceless. Um, they don't need anybody to give them voice. They have their own voices. Um, I just tried to record their voices and share them. So um, there are some Syrian activists who say, you know, nobody needs to give us voice. You just need to pass the microphone uh-huh. um, so our voices could be heard more loudly. So I thought in, in those terms, sort of an act of solidarity that I was lucky enough to listen to some of these voices and wanted to capture them to share with other people around the world who maybe have not been uh, listening or had the chance to listen in the kind of depth I did.
0: Ah, interesting. Okay, thank you. Yeah, so you're serving to, to amplify those voices, if you, if you will. Um, Precisely. Okay, great. Precisely. So, Wendy, where did your interest and in education into uh, the Middle East and Syria, where did that begin?
1: Mm-hmm. So I did a college semester abroad in Morocco, in North Africa. Um, I had no previous background in Arabic or the Arab world or the Middle East. It was actually my first ever trip outside the United States. And when it came to be my junior year in college, I wanted to go somewhere new and different. Um, And I ended up going to Morocco and there began studying Arabic. I lived with a local family. Um, I experienced the month of Ramadan and um, I kind of got my introduction into politics in the Arab world and have basically been doing it ever since. So that was the mid-1990s. Um, I returned to North Africa several times. I uh, ended up doing a PhD in political science with a focus on the Middle East. Um, after many trips to North Africa, went eastward and uh, found myself in the West Bank um, and uh, wrote a book of interviews with Palestinians. Uh, did my PhD with a focus on Palestinian politics and um, uh yeah, have been, have been doing it ever since.
0: Yeah, and I believe that you made note in the book that one of the things that made your interviews really effective was the fact that you didn't have to go through a translator and you could have a more authentic conversation with someone by speaking in Arabic. Is that fair to say? <laughs> Yeah, I think it was really
1: important. And, um, you know, my Arabic gets rusty sometimes over the years, but I've been studying it for over half my life and dedicated many, many years to being able to do research in the language. And uh, interviewing is a tricky thing, but I think there's something special when the interviewer is able to look the interviewee in the eyes and vice versa. And there's a moment of chemistry and connection. And, um, and I just couldn't imagine having uh, that type of interpersonal uh, uh, kind of bond and openness and trust that leads to a really rich conversation um, if I had to go through an interpreter or a translator. So it was uh, vital in creating the entire atmosphere of comfort that allows someone to feel uh, free and empowered and safe to share their story. That besides just the sheer linguistics of, of being able to understand and, and being able to gather
0: nuance and being able to follow up cues both big and small. Yeah. Well, it's apparent that that worked because, um, Mm -hmm. again, these are some really amazing conversations in this book and I want to, I want to provide a little bit of context. So I'm going to ask some questions that probably you've answered a million times and I'll say at the outset, uh, I apologize if I'm ignorant on any of these issues and, and come across, uh, incorrectly. Um, so don't, so, don't feel bad about, uh, don't
1: apologize. <laughs> you should never apologize for asking a question. Um, you know, no questions are wrong and, and it's, it, it can be a confusing situation. And, um,
0: I think it's terrific to ask, okay. ask questions. So no apologies needed. All right. Perfect. Um, so in, in, um, maybe kind of a broad sense, is it fair to say that the current situation that we're looking at, while it has uh, a very long history, and you made note that you know Syria existed or the region existed long before uh, anyone from the Assad family, uh, the current uh, revolution and, and even crisis that we're looking at, is it fair to say the starting point was when the Arab Spring was happening and a resistance began in, in 2011 in Syria, and uh, Bashar, Assad's regime, attempted to suppress that movement. Is that fair to say? You know, I would start this story
1: personally in in 1970. So for sure, the the revolution and the uprising began in 2011. But to understand 2011, Syria, you need to know what people were revolting against. And for sure, Syria, there has a millennium of history um, and – as, as a as a, as a, as a place with a, with, a, with a crossroads of civilizations and some of the longest inhabited cities and, and active markets in the world. But the Assad regime came to power in 1970. And I think that's where it's important to begin the story. And that's actually where the book begins. So the, the, well, while the focus is on 2011 and since 2011, I chose to begin with stories that began in 1970 about the regime of of Hafez al-Assad, who seized power in 1970, who established a strong authoritarian regime, a police state in which security forces could arrest anyone at will which there was rampant corruption um, in which there was surveillance and monitoring and censorship and people were afraid to speak. He created the entire system and then he died in in the year 2000 and his son Bashar took over in 2000 Mm -hmm. and basically continued the same system. There were some, some nuances and new elements of, of his rule from 2000 to 2010 uh, most, um, importantly, in the economic realm and the gradual shift from a more state-dominated economy to a more privatized, market-oriented economy, uh, which for many Syrians may seem like life just got worse and corruption got worse and and inequality increased. Um, And then there was this uprising in 2011 of Syrians going out in the streets and finally saying enough. But they were saying enough of this entire regime, which had existed at that point for 40 years. I think it's important to understand the political context, uh, both to know what people were revolting against, and also to appreciate really how heroic it was that people went up in arms because this regime was so strong, because it had had a history of using violence against its citizens, uh, because it had really uh, embedded fear as a normal way of life and, and, and created a system in which Syrians often distrusted each other and didn't know who might be an undercover spy who was listening in on them and would write them up to the police if they were saying anything about politics. So that whole system created over 40 years creates the scene in which it's necessary to understand the 2011 revolt that began on the backdrop of the Arab Spring.
0: Wow. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. Um, Is it fair to say, so I got the impression from a lot of the interviewees that in terms of like a large-scale resistance, it perhaps wasn't as organized as it needed to be to be successful. Um, And part of that I was inferring from what the interviewees were saying was that uh, unlike a lot of other resistance movements in other countries, it's not a homogenous setting in Syria and that you have a lot of different religions, you have a lot of different ethnicities and you also have divisions within that. So you do have, um, pro Assad Syrians, you have anti Assad Syrians, you obviously have different sects of Islamic Syrians. Uh, is that a fair thing to say that the resistance, um, suffered maybe in a sense from a lack of cohesion and organization?
1: Um, here again, I, I think I would differentiate between two different issues. Okay. One is the organization of the the movement as a protest movement, organization, leadership, goal, structure, and so forth. And the other is the heterogeneity and diversity of the population. So uh, I'd say these issues are, are one and two, and they might be, um, interrelated and mixed, but I see them as largely distinct. So the first issue is about the organization of the movement. Right now there are mass protests happening in Iraq and Lebanon as we speak in early November 2019. Um, And there were protests throughout the Arab world in the Arab Spring. And this question of whether to the degree that they were organized was shared across the protests. Largely these were spontaneous protests some people call them leaderless movements across the Arab world, um, in the sense that the, these protests were not being organized from above by political part, for the most part, by political parties, by labor unions, and so forth. They largely took traditional structures of politics by surprise, mm. and millions of young people, and then people from across society went out in the streets, people who maybe had never participated in politics before. um, Information spread from uh, word of mouth and social media, and people went out into the streets demanding change. Um, And then these large mass movements were facing incredibly organized structures of power presidents, armies, entrenched single-party regimes, other political parties, and so forth. So it's hard for a mass, somewhat spontaneous social movement to be effective against these um, very organized instruments of power. And one of the reasons why these movements were sort of mass social movements that were not really organized from above or um, or organized effectively by many structures from below is because they were coming in authoritarian contexts in which it was literally impossible to organize. Mm. In Syria, you know, it was illegal for more than five people to gather. You had to get approval from a security force in order to gather. People had to get approval from a security force to have a wedding. Any kind of gathering of people was seen as potentially uh, dangerous and subversive by the regime. The regime did not allow people to gather. It did not allow independent political parties. It did not allow independent unions or sports clubs or civic spaces. Literally, people had no space to come and gather and organize. Um, so in that setting, how do people make a revolution? You know, it began with small groups, And then people went out and, and, um, and then it was I think really remarkable the degree to which in Syria, people did begin to organize Um, in Syria, the main unit of organization were called local coordination committees, Mm -hmm. or some CPS, they formed spontaneously at the neighborhood level, in order to keep protests going once protests got off the ground. Committees formed to keep protests going. They had to you know, rally people and say, we're going to have a protest on this day or that day. They had to make banners and signs. They had to get PA equipment and microphones for the demonstrations. They had to hide that PA equipment in a, in a careful way because if the police found you with a microphone, it would probably arrest you on charge that you were involved in demonstrations. Um, then as soon as the, the regime started responding to peaceful protests with violence, shooting, arresting, and so forth, these local coordination units had to um, provide aid for people. They, they formed their own underground hospitals when it became too dangerous to go to public hospitals. They um, got in food and medicine for areas when they became under curfew and siege. They would hide people who were, who couldn't sleep at home because if they did, the police would come and get them. So you formed all sorts of, or they formed all sorts of spontaneous new forms of organization without which it would have been impossible to sustain this uprising. So organization, forms of organization were created. And the proof of that is that this organ, is that this uprising endured. It would have been over in a matter of days or months if people didn't come up with organized solutions to um, the problems uh, that sustained revolts presented themselves. So, to, so to sum up, there on, on the one hand, the, the people were working with the enormous. Um, disadvantage of not having a pre-existing history of civil society organizations that could step in as natural leaders of an uprising, because those were totally prohibited, crushed, decimated, and were not allowed to exist in the authoritarian system. Despite that, people came up with their own ways of organizing, but they were up against the tremendous odds of uh, an entrenched regime a strong army, strong police and security forces, um, and a regime that had been, figured out a way to sustain itself over decades. So that's, all, so that's just actually the tip of the iceberg of the question of organization, which is a really complex one in the study of, of social movement. I would say all of that exists independently of the question of the heterogeneity of the population, because the organization question is more a classic question of how do social movements organize in the face of tremendous odds and especially in authoritarian and illiberal contexts in which there's uh, you know such constraints on on the typical organizations that that, that organize dissent but the, the question on heterogeneity is complicated Syria is is what some call a, an ethnic mosaic in which the majority of the population is sunni muslim arab Um, and maybe 60, 70, 75 percent, there, there are no firm numbers and it's hotly contested. Um, some 10, 15 percent of the population is Alawite, which is a, um, uh, an offshoot of Shi'i Islam. The Assad family is from the Alawite religious minority. Um, similar numbers are Druze, another, uh, a smaller Muslim. Um, a community. There's a similar size of, of Christians and Christians of various denominations and then also of Kurds, which is a different ethnic linguistic group. Um, Kurds have their own language, their own holidays, their own heritage, but are of different religions, um, most of whom or many of whom are, are uh, Sunni Muslims, but are um, have, a, have a different kind of identity. So Syria has a different ethno-religious linguistic groups, um, and and different groups position themselves differently sometimes vis-a-vis the uprising, although you had supporters of the uprising and supporters of the regime span all of these different groups. Wow,
0: Wendy, um, thank for, you. The, the, um, <laughs> no, 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 uh, keep going.
1: Okay, good. So, I mean, it's, it's a bit complicated because the Assad family is from this Alawite Uh, minority. And it has traditionally presented itself, this for the course of decades, as a kind of protector of religious minorities in Syria, Um, saying, you know, we're from a religious minority and and we protect the secular national character of the country. This also ensures a free, equal place for all other minorities, kind of as a Creating a certain kind of fear mongering that with, um, should the regime fall and the Sunni Muslim Arab majority come to power, that they would, um, destroy the secular national character of the country, that they would, uh, institute, um, Islamic law or in some way would infringe upon the rights of non, um, Sunni Muslim Arabs. This has been largely insinuated in the kind of regime presentation of itself for decades. And after the uprising began in 2011, it was quite an active fear-mongering tactic in which the regime tried to basically say, you know, religious minorities stick with us, the devil you know, rather than this uncertainty of an uprising, the devil you don't, um, because these could be radical extremists who want to come Slaughter you, exterminate you, um, and take away your place in Syria and ruin the Syria that you've you've known. So, uh, in part on that backdrop, you had, you know, probably a disproportionate share of, of Syrian religious minorities loyal to the regime, um, whereas most uh, of the opposition tended to be Sunni Muslim, but there were Sunni Muslims who have been Fierce loyalists sticking by the regime, and you have members of all the different religious minority communities uh, became activists in the uprising, and some were were killed for their for their activism against the Assad regime. So it's definitely not black and white and absolute, but the um, but the complex religious ethnic makeup of the country has intersected with lines of loyalty or opposition in,
0: in complicated ways. Wow, um, that's an incredible response. Thank you. I I had two. Sure.
1: it's complicated.
0: It's it's it gets
1: it's it's really complicated. <laughs> you ask a, 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 a simple question and you're going to get a complicated <laughs> answer in this
0: area. No, I appreciate it. I I had just two thoughts on that, just to put a cap on that question. Um, sure. It, it was just it, you know there's so many stories in here, and it was just sparking my memory. Uh, in regards to organization and just people's bravery. When I was reading it, yeah. it almost seemed surreal. Like we are talking about real life here. And, you yeah. know, you mentioned um, like medical aid services, people are turning their homes into makeshift hospitals. And all that with the backdrop of if you're discovered, you disappear or you are put in jail and your family doesn't have contact with you. And maybe you show up in 10 years or likely you don't. Um, so yeah, like I thought, that was a really great response to that. And then also, I know there was at least at least one or two of the interviewees who said, you know, despite the fact that we were or we are an incredibly diverse country, um, prior to this, like we didn't even think about religious differences that much. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. Sunnichi, it it didn't matter to me. And now, uh, you know, these divisions are being used uh, to pit people against each other, to create fear, to create pro-Assad or anti-Assad. Yeah, it's uh, really interesting and enlightening to to hear something like that, because that's not something I had had ever heard, you know, on the news or, or, or prior to reading this book. No, absolutely. And I think that in, you know, the
1: United States portrayal of the Middle East in general overemphasizes religious and sectarian differences and tribal differences. I think for most, uh, you know, um, Americans, if they, this is a long sort of uh, legacy of histories of Orientalism or the simplifications in in a media landscape that wants to look for, for, type categories and put people into the cubby holes, it's easy to put, to paint conflicts in the Middle East along sectarian or religious lines. Okay. The Shi'i are against the Sunni. So in, in, in Syria, oh, the, the Alawites are against the Sunnis and so forth. Um, what came really comes forth in the stories in the book and every conversation I've had with Syrians and the plethora of the Syrians writing for themselves, and the movies they produce, and the art they produce, and their conversations, and their their own declarations. And you know, that this conflict is fundamentally about uh, about power and accountability, about the quest for change, and those who are willing to do anything to hold on to power. It's it's about the people and the regime. It's about those who who have power trying to hold on to it, and citizens wanting. Basic rights, basic liberties, and a better lives for themselves and their family. And to paint this about religion or about ethnicity or about which group versus which group is to fundamentally misunderstand the conflict that's about citizens and an abusive
0: state. Wow. Um, thank you. I sure. am going to give a thought and then I'm going to read. There's one interview that's a half page. Uh, on Mm -hmm. page 160 of of your book. I'd love to read that. So I'll give a thought, I'll read that, and then I I would love to hear from you. Um, Great. Again, I'm not a scholar on these issues. uh, Don't worry, don't worry. (laughs) My my thought is, in in terms of the U.S. getting involved, or, you know, really, Mm -hmm. like when you talk about the U.S., it's really like a coalition, right? Because uh, if the U.S. gets involved, likely it's going to be the British as well and UN forces, But I I have two thoughts at once. It's, you know, I I listen to the debates and I hear someone like Tulsi Gabbard say, we have to stop these regime change wars. And I think about the U.S.'s history in the Middle East, but also in Latin America, where, you know, uh, whole governments were overthrown for, um, you know, united fruit, uh, essentially, or um, Mm -hmm. structural adjustment policies from the World Bank in which... uh, You know, regimes are changed and policies are changed to allow for uh, Western businesses to come in, and I think like yeah, those things are not necessarily what I want my government to be doing around the world. Mm -hmm. But then at the same time, you hear about you know these atrocities, and you read the stories in this book, and you think, my God, is somebody going to step in here and like and help? And you Mm -hmm. you saw a lot of people saying that in this book, like we anticipated. The US and the UN coming in. And at, at, at one point, yes, finally we think they're here, but then nothing, nothing changed. And where are they? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and I want to just read this one interview because it is it's honestly it's crushing and it's poetic. And uh, I think it maybe makes this point I'm I'm trying to make. And so this is on page 160. Mm-hmm. So everybody go get the book and read it. But <laughs> this is Abu Faras, and he says, for every action there is a reaction. When the regime mm-hmm. is killing in this way, people become what we call jihadists and you call terrorists. I swear to God that I have nothing but respect for you regardless of your ethnicity, religion, or nationality. But when my sister is arrested and they rape her, I have no problem entering any place in the world with a, with a car strapped with explosives. Because no country in the world is paying attention to me. Not a single one is doing anything to protect any fraction of the rights that I should have as a human being living on earth. I'm not saying that the conscience of the international community is asleep. I'm saying that conscience doesn't exist at all. Um, so can you maybe give a synopsis of uh, the U.S.'s involvement or lack thereof in this?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, and and you 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 know you began this question i think in a very on point way which is something that you know has the pulse of the american people of um, a sense that you know we are we have gotten involved in um, other countries in regime change ways for all sorts of bad reasons that those have been, had bad intents it had disastrous consequences. Uh, you, we got involved in Afghanistan. We got involved in Iraq. I think many Americans see those as having been disastrous wars. And by the time we got to 2011, most Americans said, the last thing we want is any more involvement in any kind of war in, in, the, in the Middle East or Muslim world. Um, and not all cases of American involvement are the same. What, what people were begging for in Syria, and uh, including the man whose who, words you just read, um, was not for the U.S. to launch a regime change operation. This was not a U.S.-initiated war. This was not a, a U.S. mission. This was a Syrian initiative. It was from the grassroots of Syrians themselves launching a brave, nonviolent, totally popular, grassroots rebellion against their own government because they wanted to be free. Because after decades of living under an oppressive, corrupt, brutal rule, they wanted to be citizens. They wanted to choose their own government. They wanted to not be arrested without charge and thrown into a prison and tortured to death. This was a Syrian crusade for regime change, for Syrians to change their own regime, which has been oppressing them for so long. And they rose up bravely and nonviolently, and they were met with horrific violence from a government that literally said that, and did that they were willing to destroy the whole country if that's what it took to keep Assad in power. So the regime responded to protests with bullets. They, pres- they responded with arrests. They responded with torture. They responded Rape. They responded eventually with artillery and mortar and then aerial bombardment, dropping bombs from above. What can civilians possibly do against bombing from the sky? And then, as we know, they also responded with chemical weapons. And the question then for the United States was, will we all step in to take a stand for civilian protection, to protect in some way these defenseless civilians from being slaughtered? Or do we stand on the sidelines and do nothing? That's what I see the debate or the, the question before the United States as, as having been. Do we get involved in some way to prevent Syrians from being killed by their own government? Or do we essentially allow them to be killed by their own government by not getting involved in an active way? For me, that question is totally different than should we get involved in regime change operations? Mm. This was a question for me of civilian protection, of support to a population that was otherwise up against a tremendously unequal fight. They were civilians using what means they could against a regime that had a full army and that also had the concerted backing of Russia, of Iran of Hezbollah and so forth. So Syrians went out in protest. They were met with violence. Eventually the Syrian opposition also took up arms and those rebels were begging for weapons so that they could fight in a more equal way. And various countries did get involved sending weapons to the Syrian opposition, but there was never in the way that would be organized, that was concerted and was fully committed um, in comparison to the, the full organized Um, to the death sort of support that Assad got from its allies. And then left to fragment and become chaotic, uh, the Syrian conflict evolved into this sort of multi-sided war. Al-Qaeda became involved, came in with its forces, Al-Qaeda from Iraq, as well as other sort of Al-Qaeda militants who uh, the Assad regime actually released from prison, formed an Al-Qaeda affiliate um, in in Syria. From there emerged the organization that came to be known as ISIS. And soon you had all sorts of different groups with very radical agendas that came, that took advantage of the cracks of the Syrian conflict, but were not representing that original revolutionary movement against the Assad regime, which is why you had Syrian uh, revolutionaries say, you know, we're fighting on, on two fronts or more than one front. We're fighting the tyranny of Assad on the one hand, and the tyranny of ISIS or other extremist groups on the other. And the United States essentially abandoned these folks in the middle to be quashed, to be crushed, and to be killed. Um, this is not a regime-changed war. This is a question of, of the, the obligation to
0: protect civilians or uh, not fulfilling that obligation. Wow, that actually makes a lot of sense and provides a lot of clarity, so I appreciate that. Um obviously the the big thing that's been in the news lately is the US pulling troops out or relocating troops to Iraq uh which leaves the Kurds that we armed as allies uh vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Can you can you provide a little bit of context about what this is and, and what's happening?
1: Yeah, it's a really confusing situation. So um when the United States did finally become involved in Syria in in 2014, it was not to fight the Assad regime, it was to fight ISIS. So ISIS emerges as this jihadi group. It's able to uh, conquer and govern the territory in northeast Syria and in Iraq and declares itself um, the Islamic State as an entity. And the United States becomes involved in the... um, in Syria to lead a, a bombing campaign to destroy the Islamic state as an entity. Um, but the Islamic state it was you know it' difficult would be difficult to achieve that military mission only by bombing from above. It needed local allies on the ground also to serve as uh, a ground force to also fight ISIS from below. And um, when we we became, allies in that respect with the with Kurdish dominated militias. So as Syria began to fragment and all sorts of different groups got got arms, the, the Kurdish population in the, the northeast of Syria where the Kurdish population had traditionally be concentrated, also Kurdish groups formed militias to um, and and armed groups to sort of stake out some of their interests, um, again, that don't necessarily represent all Kurdish civilians, but Kurdish political groups that wanted to, to expand some sort of Kurdish autonomy or at least govern their own territory or, or defend their own populations or so forth, formed, formed militias. And when we were coming in, when this anti-ISIS kind of a, a mission, we formed a partnership with Kurdish groups on the ground, um, which eventually sort of, uh, united into a broader front called the Syrian Democratic Forces um, that were dominated by these Kurdish groups that also contained non-Kurdish groups. So there were both Kurdish and Arab um, in a group called the Syrian Democratic Forces. And those were our formal ally with which we worked in the fight against ISIS. So as that fight against ISIS succeeded and ISIS as a caliphate or as a proclaimed state crumbled, ISIS still exists as cells and as fighters, and as an idea, but as a governing entity, crumbled. Um, the group on the ground that effectively came to govern the territory that had once been ISIS were these groups, Syrian Democratic Forces, led predominantly by by Kurdish groups, which have come to dominate about one third of Syria, in 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 former ISIS areas and 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 others, um, and since. ISIS's fall then, they've governed these territory. There were about 1,000 U.S. um, personnel also in this territory to support and train the Syrian Democratic Forces. Some were special operatives, advisors, and so forth. So um, U.S. military uh, analysts always said this was an extremely small U.S. Military operation. Just a thousand servicemen, who, by the way, had no uh, deaths and fatalities. The Kurdish-led forces lost something like eleven thousand fighters in wow. the fight against ISIS. We didn't lose any. We were bombing from above, and these others came in as supporters. So, in terms of the number of people, the number of fatalities, the amount of money, this is a pretty small footprint. It was a pretty small U.S. operation, but. U.S. fighters there were able to help sustain, stabilize a status quo in which this one-third of the country was under the hands of the SDS, and Kurdish communities and others had a measure of autonomy and self-government and created their own institutions to govern this territory. And one of the reasons that the U.S. presence was important, there are many reasons why the U.S. presence was important, um, you know, in kind of creating this sort of semi-stable situation was because there are so many other players in and around the Syrian conflict that would otherwise want to take this, this territory. Um, one was Turkey, which is right on the other side of the border. Now, Turkey has its own decade long conflict with the Kurds. Some 18% of Turkey's population is Kurdish in origin. They've had a long struggle for their own cultural and linguistic rights and their own long-standing conflict with the Turkish government in the 1980s one a Kurdish group called the PKK which uh, endorsed armed struggle and even acts of terrorism to fight the Turkish government the Kurdish group in Syria that is the strongest group in the Syrian democratic forces happens to be linked to the PKK from the Turks' perspective the Kurdish group in Syria is just another branch of the terrorist group that they've been fighting since the 1980s. And for them, it's totally unacceptable to have that group essentially be governing territory right on Turkey, Syria, a Southern border. So Turkey long said, these Kurdish groups, we won't tolerate them. We don't want them near our border. And this is unacceptable. Um, the only thing that prevented Turkey from coming in to fight those Kurdish groups inside Syria was the U.S. presence. Turkey doesn't want the Kurds there, but it also doesn't want to go to war with the United States. So this remained a kind of tense but relatively stable situation for many years until President Trump announced that he was moving and removing U.S. troops. So, the first announcement was essentially that there were some 50 U.S. servicemen that were in key positions near the Syrian Turkish border. And announcing that those were being moved essentially gave a green light for Turkey to come in and invade this area. Turkey's declared goal was to create a quote unquote safe zone. It wanted to move some 30 kilometers from the Turkish border inside. Syrian territory and say no Kurdish fighters could be in that area, essentially clear them out. It began an invasion. Um, You had some, I think, 200 deaths, about 200,000 Syrian civilians start fleeing because of the fear of the situation. And the Kurdish group said, we're in a situation where we're facing being slaughtered by Turkey the U.S. was supposed to be our protector and our defender. The U.S. has totally withdrawn, abandoned us, betrayed us. Who can we go to to protect us? We need a stronger force to help take, keep Turkey at bay or Turkey's going to come in and kill us. And they looked around who could play that role now that the U.S. announced it was no longer interested and was leaving the scene. Um, the Kurdish forces turned to Russia and to the Assad regime as being stronger forces that could come in. So that essentially invited Russia now to become the main power broker and actor in this part of the world. The Russian president negotiated with the Turkish president to come up with some kind of a, an arrangement or a ceasefire that would stop the Turkish invasion um, where it was and, and, and create some sort of protection for the Kurds. Russia is of course, you know, fiercely allied with the Assad regime. So this allows the Assad regime to also come into these parts of northeast Syria where it effectively has been uh, not present for um, the better part of, of five or so years. Um, so the U.S. in removing or announcing to remove its it, its presence um, allowed Turkey to invade, allowed Russia and, and Assad to gain, and then President Trump came under so much criticism after this that essentially he's what announced in the past week or so is that, OK, actually, no, we're not going to fully be removed from northeast Syria. We're going to bring back other U.S. troops who will guard the oil fields because this whole part of the country is, is where uh, Syrian oil is most um, is, is based. So other U.S. troops are coming in now to essentially guard oil fields. Uh, to prevent ISIS from coming back and getting them or others from getting them. So in the end of the day, the expectation is that there will be probably about 900 uh, U.S. troops in this area. So essentially, nothing has changed in terms of the number of U.S. people on the ground. There were about 1,000 when this is all said and done. The expectation is that there will be about 900. But what we did was an an absolute catastrophe. Um, There are deaths. There are more displacements. The the, um, experiment of of the Kurdish-led self-government and autonomy in this area has been crushed. Russia has come in as the strongest uh, superpower in that part of of Syria as in other parts of the uh, Syrian territory. And the Assad regime has gained and is poised to eventually take back that part of the country as it is gradually taking back all of the parts of the country that had slipped from its control since
0: 2011. Wow. Uh, Thank you for that clarity as well. That's incredibly helpful. Um, You have a whole section of the book in which uh, there are Syrians who are giving their perspective once they've, they've left Syria. So you have Syrians who are living in camps but you also have many stories and interviews from Syrians who have made it to Europe or who have made it to the United States. And those mm-hmm. are honestly, they're they're brilliant. They're also heartbreaking at times, um, mm-hmm. from simply talking about cultural differences to talking about uh, the actual journey that was taken to get to a place like Belgium or Norway. But there was mm-hmm. also, uh, it was interesting for me to read a lot of people saying, I almost wish I was back in Syria because now I'm here in the U.S. and I'm reading about this heartbreak and I'm reading about death and I'm wondering and worrying about my family and I can't get in touch and I'm reading this through the paper. Uh, and it's really it's heartbreaking and I think it gives a really interesting uh, perspective and it gives some context to the lives of Syrian refugees who are living either in Europe or in the States. Uh, but through following you know your Twitter, which is really wonderful, and people should follow because you 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 retweet a lot a lot of articles about this. Um, but I had read something about how some countries now are starting to send Syrian refugees back. Um, yeah, and I'm wondering what you know about that. And I'm also just like incredibly fearful because again, in reading this book, even peaceful demonstrations, like like raising your fist or speaking out in public, or I remember this, uh, this incredible one of the four women dressed as brides. Um, right, th- right. What's 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 going to happen to people that go back?
1: Yeah, it's um so oh, very interesting. Uh, uh, one of the. The Syrian or associations um, now based outside was managed to do a survey of Syrian refugees who did return to Syria. Uh, sorry, that did be, managed to do a, a um, survey of Syrian refugees who did return to Syria and found that the overwhelming majority absolutely regret that decision. Mm. These are people who went back on their own. And when Syrian refugees have returned, it typically began then because. Uh, life in exile is so harsh. You have people living in, in Lebanon and in Jordan and in, in Turkey, about 5.6 million Syrian refugees. And many of them, you know, are are living in absolute destitution. They can't, it's illegal to work. They might work under the table in really harsh conditions for very low wages. They might live in a tent or in a shack or in a storage room. Um, and many of them, their kids are not in school. And you have families who say our life is so terrible, we're, you know, we're unsafe, we we're, um, can barely make ends meet, let's try to go back home, maybe things will be better. And this survey found that from of those refugees who did that, most um, absolutely regret it, most are trying to leave Syria again, and what they found in Syria is that it's totally unsafe this regime is just as brutal and just as authoritarian as it was in 2011, but even more so, because in addition now, it's vengeful. It's suspicious of everyone. Were you on the right side or the wrong side? Were you with us or against us? So there's a kind of vengefulness, um, which makes make its, its brutality even worse. So people who have returned talk about, um, some are arrested and detained, or tortured or disappeared upon arrival. There are many cases of that. Um, there are men who are, upon arrival, forcibly conscripted into the army. Syria has universal conscription. All men wow. have to serve in the army. The army is now still fighting an act of war, is desperate for manpower. So any man is, is liable to just be you know taken away and thrown into the army and into the front line. Um, in addition, you have a total collapse of the economy. So people can't get food, they can't get fuel. And because there's a total collapse of the economy, corruption is just through the roof because everybody's desperate. So anybody who has a bit of power to abuse, a person with a gun, a person at a checkpoint, a person with a position, is just preying upon other people to extract bribes, to coerce payments, because everybody's just in a struggle to survive. So life is, is truly... Um, is truly unlivable in, in, in many places. Of course, there are differences about whether the area is under the Assad regime or not, but the all the information coming out is that those who have returned um, are, uh, have found a situation in which they regret ever having left their place of refuge. So in the, in the past um, five or six months, and especially this past summer, there were some really scary stories coming out of Lebanon forcing um, Syrian refugees to go back, of Turkey uh, forcibly deporting Syrian refugees, of of, in Turkish provinces rounding up Syrian refugees if they didn't have the proper paperwork to live in the province where they were currently living. Many, some say hundreds, maybe up to a thousand or more, Syrian refugees apparently were forced to sign statements in which they essentially... Uh, we're saying that they were voluntarily returning to to Syria. So Human Rights Watch and other groups have documented this out of Turkey this summer. Syrian refugees were rounded up, essentially were given statements typically written in Turkish that someone may or may not even understand. Were forced to sign a document that said, I volunteer to return to Syria. And then they were just shipped over and plopped on the other side of the border. Um, There were already cases of some men who were put in a situation who then tried to sneak back from Syria into Turkey because their families were still in Turkey. Their wives and their kids were still in Turkey. And at least a handful of these cases of, of these men were killed actually as they tried to get back from Syria to Turkey. So it's incredibly unsafe. Um, as of now, I do not believe there have been any cases of European or, or, um, North American or Western governments that have forced Syrians to go back. Um, but there is a huge worry among Syrian refugees that that might happen. So in Germany, for example, the, the German ministry that oversees migrants and refugees continually monitors the situation and comes up with an assessment. Is it safe for, Asylum seekers to be returned to Syria or not, and up until now, it continually comes up with the assessment that Syria is still simply unsafe, so Syrians won't be sent back. Um, but for example, the, the the German government has has made the assessment that Afghanistan is safe, so you have Afghans who've tried to make it to, to Germany. Um, and have been sent back to Afghanistan. And some of them have been killed too. Ah. So so Syrians, yeah, Syrians worry that it might just be a matter of time that not just Germany, but the world community says the Syrian civil war is over, Assad has won, he's reestablished his control, everything has gone back to normal, and now all these refugees that the world doesn't want, we can send them back home. And I think what's really important to remember as you exactly alluded to is the danger in Syria is not simply the bombs falling. For sure, that's a huge source of, of, of danger and most refugees fled danger of that sort and um, it's criminal and against international law to send people back to a place where there are still bombs falling. But even if Syria reaches a point where there are no longer bombs and chemical weapons falling from the sky, this government, this brutal authoritarian regime, there's no reason to expect that it will stop using violence against its citizens. And it will be a place that's incredibly unsafe for anyone who in any way participated in any kind of protest, for anybody who wrote a Facebook post that was critical for anybody who is related to or has a friend who was in the opposition. Um, this regime killed anybody at once on any, um, suspicion. And, um, it's not going to be safe for refugees anytime soon.
0: Wow. Um, I know that you need to wrap up in just a minute or two. So <laughs> I want to ask sure. you, uh, if somebody reads your book and they listen to this conversation, and they want to stay current on what's happening. Uh, what's your recommendation either for like required reading that's already been written or for sources of information in news outlets that uh, you know are reporting with accuracy?
1: Oh, great. So I would seek out um, writing by Syrians. and that, and that is the one um, I mean I don't even want to say it's a silver lining because the situation is so tragic. There's no space for silver lining. But one thing that gives me, Hope um, in the future is that in the course of, of finding their voices um, and using their voices and insisting on their freedom, Syrians have created um, a huge number of news outlets, of websites, of creative initiatives, and so forth. So there's a lot of um, Syrians out there speaking their truths and documenting and um, and so forth. So seek out Syrian. Sources of information. So one website that I love is called um, uh, dot net and that's a Syrian-run in, in Arabic and in English. There's um, other um, outlets called One Syria Direct. There are a huge number of Syrian. Um, outlets where Syrians themselves are writing and speaking and people can find out from Syrians themselves about their own perspectives. sort of and listen to Syrians rather than just listening to others talk about Syrians. Um, I think I can, can come up with some suggestions that maybe you can put on the, on the website links. um, yeah,
0: absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, perfect. You know, for people listening to, um, the, your Twitter account I'll link to in the show notes and you have a lot oh, of those, those resources directly from your Twitter as well.
1: Fantastic. Yeah, that'd, that'd be great.
0: Yeah, so Wendy, listen, you are an incredible wealth of, uh, of knowledge here and I think the book is a real treasure and I think that people really need to read it. Um, so I really appreciate your time. Thank you. I appreciate
1: it. So best of luck and be in touch if I can help at all. And, and I will, um, I can send you some links to some Syrian news sites.
0: That is a wrap on episode number 132 of the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. Thank you so much to Wendy Perlman for being the extraordinary guest on today's episode. Thank you to all of you Voyagers as always for tuning in and for spreading the word about the podcast. I'm going to read one final short interview that's part of the book on our way out. So, before that, folks, I'll say, as always, please, please, please take care of each other, and I will catch you next time. Abu Faras, fighter. My brother was kidnapped by the Shabiha. After 18 days, they sent him back to us, killed under torture. You can't imagine how he died. His toenails were ripped out. His bones had been pierced with a drill. There were marks from being beaten and burned. His nose was beaten so severely that it was flat. We buried him. And about three months later, some guys who were released from prison contacted us and told us that my brother was actually still alive. They'd been with him in prison. The body we'd buried belonged to a different person. He was so disfigured that we couldn't tell he was someone else.